This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hey everybody, the Hockey News Podcast is sort of here. Matt Larkin here at home once again. I have my compadres on the phone. Ryan Kennedy's here. Ken Campbell's here. We want to bring you this podcast, but we are once again snowed in. I'm embarrassed to say this as a Canadian. We don't want to be those stereotypical Torontonians that can't handle the snow, but it just keeps separating us. And uh, here we are trying to do the podcast remotely. How's it going, fellas? Kenny, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah, and you know what, Matt? It's them, not us, okay? Like, we could get to work. We could do all these things. But there's like a conga line of idiots out there who cannot negotiate winter and put the city at a standstill because they have no winter tires and they're stupid. I agree. And although, Ryan, you managed to make it here, right? You got to the office somehow. I had a totally normal it was beautiful. Like, there was no problems on the subway whatsoever. And yeah, it, it was easy for me, but I guess I just have, like, a, a nice path. But I do I do recall, Ken, overhearing somebody last week losing their mind on the phone because the uh, auto shop was going to take more than, like, an hour to put on their winter tires. And, like, how, do you not, how did you not have them on in November? Yeah, really, because winter is almost over. Yeah, yeah. yeah did, it, did, did, did it just creep up on you? Did you just, did you not yeah. know what was coming? Did you, yeah. Did you expect to get them for Christmas? Like. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, well, uh, enough about the weather, because it's making me depressed. We're going to jump into some hot topics. First of all, uh, a late addition to the trade party, uh, Jonathan Uberdo, the Florida Panthers left winger, first liner, uh, has been suddenly mentioned, it was a report by TSN's Frank Saravalli, that he might be on the trade block. And uh, as Saravalli also said, it's no secret that the Panthers have intentions to pursue Artemi Panarin and Sergei Bobrovsky as a package team, as unrestricted free agents. So the question now is whether the Panthers are going to consider moving Uberdo now because he would be an ideal fit for Columbus who is looking for a replacement for Panarin that would still help them win now. Uh, but my question for you guys is, does this make any sense for the Florida Panthers? Because I'm looking at it for me, and I, I think, well, if you're losing Jonathan Uberdo to get Panarin, who you could still negotiate with in the summer, then what's the point of getting Panarin? You're just swapping out one good left winger for another, and you're not really upgrading your offense. What do you guys think? I agree with you, Matt. And one good left winger who's 25 years old and is under contract for four more years on a very team-friendly deal. Uh, this makes This makes no sense to me whatsoever none whatsoever like on on any level like um you know as far as i mean i don't follow the florida panthers intimately but from what i can gather jonathan huberto is not the problem there um if he were then i could see maybe you know you're trying to change your culture or you're trying to you know shake up the room or whatever okay then you, you do make a big trade but to trade a 25 year old guy who's under contract for four more years at 5.9 million for two pending unrestricted free agents makes no sense. Like, Artemi Panarin has already said he's going on July 1st. Artemi Panarin has already said he, well, hasn't said, but the speculation is that Artemi Panarin wants to play somewhere where it's warm and there's water. Um, you know, Artemi Panarin is negotiating against himself here. The Florida Panthers could probably have him after this year 
just by saying, yeah, we're in Florida. <laughs> you know, we're in Florida. Uh-huh. We are right where we are, and it's really warm all the time. And there's a lot of Rutgers down here. So, uh, no, it makes no sense to me that you would trade uh, Jonathan Huberto for those two guys. The only thing, the only way I can see this having any validity whatsoever is maybe the Panthers are getting calls on Huberto. And, I mean, you're going to listen, right? You're going to listen. If somebody calls you and says, you know, we want to, we're interested in player X, and then you're, the first thing is you're going to say, well, what are you willing to give up? And I suspect that perhaps maybe people are, the vultures are circling around Florida and people are calling, um, but I, I, this makes no sense to me. Yeah, when I look at this situation from Florida's perspective, I, you know, like assuming that Panarin and Bobrovsky are going to be a package, like how does that work for Florida that already has Roberto Luongo and James Reimer signed for the next, you know, not only through this season, but you know, Reimer until the end of 2021 and, and Luongo the season after that. Luongo, you know, has, uh, you know, a, a no trade clause, a modified no trade clause, and he's 39. Like, even if you get rid of James Reimer, Luongo and Bobrovsky, like, how much salary is that going to be? Like, Bobrovsky's one, he's going to want at least nine, I would assume. Uh, debate amongst yourselves whether he deserves that at this point in his career and, and what he's going to project to be in the next few years. But can you imagine having $13.5 million committed to goaltending? Yeah, and it's a- you're bringing in Panarin. And you still have Aaron Ekblad. Sasha Barkov, yeah, Yandel. yeah. I think the only way, way this makes sense. I think the only way this makes sense, Ryan, is is if Roberto Luongo retires after this year. Because mm-hmm. uh, then, what, is there no cap penalty for that? I, I don't think so. Because and and I could be wrong, but I don't think so because he signed the contract before he was thirty five. Um, mm. I think if he decides to retire, I. But I could be wrong. I I. I in fact, I do. I will stand corrected if that's not the case. Mm. And I think the cap recapture. I'm not, and, and I'm not sure how much it would go to. I, I, from what I understand, cap recapture goes to the team that benefits from it most. So I assume that the Panthers will have benefited most from this. So the cap recapture would go to them and not Vancouver. But again, I, I might be speaking out of school here. Right. I, I was racking my brain for the same thing. We know that there's the over 35 rule, but the the contract not cutting against the cap, and I'm thinking of Pavel Datsuk, but I'm pretty sure that Datsuk signed that deal post 35, that last contract. So I don't know. Any, everyone listening, we'll go. We'll go look it up after, and we'll and we'll, uh, we'll get to the bottom of it because now I'm pretty I'm pretty motivated to research this. Um, keeping uh, with the topic of trade deadline talk, switching over to Ottawa now, we see Ma- uh, Mark Stone, Matt Duchesne, Ryan Zingle. All three of them, UFAs, all three of them, as of the time of this recording, do not have contracts yet, and we're getting very close to that trade deadline, less than two weeks now. Um, so I guess the first question is, what do you do if you're Pierre Dorian? And, and I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit, because um, it's not like Ottawa is in a situation like Columbus where you're a bubble team and you think, okay, we're going to have in-house rentals, 
and we're going to go for it, and we're going to, you know, even if we, we're going to risk losing a Mark Stone because we're pursuing a, a playoff spot. Ottawa's obviously not doing that. So the situation is more analogous to the New York Islanders last year who felt confident that they would re-sign John Tavares, and John Tavares' language at this time last year was pretty positive, and it seemed to be all but guaranteeing he wanted to stay an Islander, and we know what happened next. So if you're Ottawa, at what point do you have to decide, okay, we don't have these guys signed, we have to open the books in terms of trade talks, and we have to consider trading all three. Where do you guys fall when it comes to the Senators' three guys? Well, uh, guys, I was just in Ottawa this past weekend. I was doing a piece uh, following the Winnipeg Jets around, so uh, they played in Ottawa on uh, Saturday, I think. Yeah, and Saturday afternoon, so I was I was in Ottawa, and you know, obviously that was the huge topic of conversation, and, and the general feeling among the people that I spoke to was that uh, they should trade all three of these guys um, and get what they can for them. For, for the same reason, for some of the same reasons you talked about, Matt. Um, you know, I mean, you, you guys can say all they want that they want to stay, um, but um, you know, I mean, if, if Mark Stone stays, he's going to be the captain. He's going to be the guy to lead the rebuild. Um, so, you know, I mean, is that enough for him to stick around? I'm not sure it is. Uh, from what I've been able to gather, it's I think the, the guy that's most likely to stay inside long-term would be Matt Duchesne. Um, but they still don't know that yet. And, and apparently they put in a sort of a self-imposed deadline of two weeks before the trade deadline to get some clarity on this. And the two weeks before the trade deadline was uh, was Monday. So um, you'd have to think they're, they're going to have the wheels in motion. Dezingle, I think, is gone. I think, you know, I think Ryan Dezingle's uh, a guy that, you know, he's fast and he's you know, he's obviously had a great year this year. Uh, I think the Senators are banking on somebody overpaying for him at the trade deadline. Uh, and somebody's definitely going to overpay for him in free agency this summer, in my opinion. Um, you know, Duchesne is a guy that I think there's an optics thing there, too, because they gave up so much to get him uh, that to let him go for nothing now uh, would not look good. So I think that the full court press will be on there to see if they can keep him uh, in the fold, and then you know, Mark Stone is a guy that you could probably get quite a good package for at the trade deadline. I think the longer you wait, the less it gets, the less good it gets. Um, but you know, they'll be looking for probably a first, a roster player, and a good prospect for for someone like that. So, um, I I guess if I were betting man right now, I would say that Shane stays and Stone and Dzingel get traded. Um, but they may, but they they may all, all three of them might get dealt. I, I think the Senators should deal all three, particularly because, as we have mentioned many times on this podcast, they do not have their own first-rounder in this draft. They could lose Jack Hughes or Capococco to Colorado because of that ill-fated three-way trade uh, with Nashville and Colorado that, that landed the Magician in the first place. Um, Ottawa has the nice young players. They're, they're starting to build something. Thomas Shabbat, obviously, a star in the making. Uh, Brady Kachuk, uh, I've always been a big fan, and you know he has shown that he can be an impact player in the NHL already, even though he's a rookie and he's only going to get better. But you got to keep going. And I, I even look at it from, from Matt Duchesne's perspective. And, you know, like... I know Matt Duchesne, you know, kind of well in terms of, you know, a hockey player and, and not just interviewing him. 
And he's a really good dude. And I can see him being loyal uh, to a market that has embraced him and, and a team that has embraced him. And, and uh, as you said, Ken gave up a lot to get him. But he's 28 years old right now. When is he going to play for a team that has sustained success? I think he has to think about you know, what his career is going to be because if he re-signs in Ottawa, obviously it's going to be a multi-year deal that's going to take him you know, even if it's five years, that takes him to age 33. Um, you know, how long is he going to be an impact player in the NHL? Will Ottawa have any semblance of contender status by the end of that contract? I don't know, uh, especially in the division they're in. I mean, Toronto's going to be good for a long time. You know, Boston's replenishing. Montreal's looking alive this year. And obviously Tampa Bay is a contender right now and will continue to be so for a couple more seasons. Um, so for me, I think you know, Matt Duchesne has to ask himself, what do I want in life? Do I want to you know, be a very good hockey player on a mediocre team, or do I want a chance at a championship? I know that the Stanley Cup is very important to him. When he was growing up, Every time the Stanley Cup was won, he would print out a picture of the captain holding up the cup, and he would post it in his basement where he worked out as motivation. And I can't imagine that that fire has been quelled since he's gotten to the NHL. I am sure it is just as important, if not more so now, than it was 10 years ago to him. Well said, Ryan. And it's interesting because on one hand I think, okay – uh, if you trade all three, then you're going to increase your odds of finishing last overall because your team's going to be terrible down the stretch. And, oh, my God, that's going to ironically push Jack Hughes closer toward Colorado. But on the other hand, it's like, you know what? The Senators are going to be – they're already, they've already been this bad with those guys. They're going to have a lot of lottery balls. There's a good chance that no matter what happens that they're going to get that first overall pick. So you may as well recoup some picks. And it's pretty exciting to think about what you could get for that trio in terms of – a, a nice little cachet of multiple first-round picks, high-end prospects. You could really turn around your farm system with those three trades in the span of just the next week or so. And like you guys said, there's there's an exciting youth movement. It's not just Kachuk and Shabbat. It's Colin White and it's Max Lejoie and then Drake Batherson, Logan Brown showing a lot down on the farm. And we know in this era, you can turn things around pretty quickly. So if if the Senators make the right trades, their future could a week or two from now, look pretty bright. And it's also, uh, I think you can make the case that you almost, in the Atlantic Division, you don't necessarily want to peak now if you're Ottawa. You're better off setting yourself up to be at your best in two or three years because that way you're missing the window of peak contention for Tampa and Toronto and your odds are probably better if you're peaking in a few years. So now we're going to switch, guys, to the West. And... Uh, the question right now is, do you panic or not? Okay, I'm talking Calgary Flames. They were dominant going into the All-Star break. They had so much momentum. Hottest team in the league, arguably. Uh, they were second overall at the time. And they, they've seemed a little bit hungover almost coming out of the All-Star break. A few losses in a row. Um, 
And on one hand, you think, okay, it's a blip, just a few losses, no reason to panic. But Captain Mark Giordano made a point of saying that he feels like the team is sliding. They took a really bad beating at the hands of the Tampa Bay Lightning. And to me, the reason why I would have a little bit of concern is goaltending. Uh, we know Mike Smith's past his prime. David Riddick had been really nice story so far this year. But he suddenly it appears that he's imploding. Um, so I guess with a focus on goaltending, first of all, I want to know what you guys think. Is there reason to panic in Calgary? Should they be pursuing a goaltending upgrade after all? Um, well, I'm not sure if there's reason to panic uh, because I think the Sharks, or sorry, the, yeah, the Flames, uh, the Flames kind of, I don't think anybody would have expected them to be in first place in the Pacific at this point in the season. So they, they did kind of overachieve in the first half. But I think I think what's happened with the Flames is, is they've, they've kind of rested on the Royals a little bit. Like, they got super outplayed last night by, by the Tampa Bay Lightning. Like, it wasn't it wasn't goaltending. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't bad goaltending at their end. It wasn't a hot goalie at the other end. They just got, they just got dummied by a team that's a really, really good team. Um, so to me, I think, and they, they talked afterwards about the details, and I think, I think maybe they were kind of reading the press clippings a little bit too much, before, you know, when they were in hot during the All-Star break, and I think they've gotten away from a lot of the things that um, made them so successful. Um, and, but goaltending is one of them. I mean, Riddick's got the hook against San Jose, and, you know, I mean, it, it appears, and you know, I, I guess what you have to cons- what you have to discern is whether or not this is a, this is a blip for David Bridge, or if he's regressing to the mean, as the uh, as the analytics guys would say, if he's if he's regressing back to to what he is. Um, if that's the case, then you know maybe maybe you do go out and look at look at, a, at getting a goalie down the stretch. Um, it certainly couldn't hurt. Uh, I don't you know I mean the goal the goaltending right now obviously isn't good enough to win in the playoffs. Um, so I guess you, you have to make that determination. Is David Riddich right now, is he is he back to what he's going to be? Or is this just a blip in, in what is otherwise a really good season? Yeah, I mean, goaltending has been my, my big fear with the Flames all season long because of Riddick's, you know, meteoric rise. I, it, it always just kind of felt to me that like eventually teams were going to figure him out and I, I think that you know maybe we're we're seeing that right now I mean hey, yeah maybe it's just a blip but it kind of hues to my theory that the longer he plays um the more teams are going to find those holes and you know when I when I look at Calgary if, if you're going to be prudent um you know Mike Smith UFA this summer you probably don't re-sign him at this point. I think that's fair. Uh, Riddick's an RFA. I think you obviously re-sign him. He could be a stellar 1B goaltender. You try to find somebody, I think, either via trade or the open market. Um, but I think the Flames have to be a little bit careful here because if you think about long-term success this season, can they come out of the West in the playoffs? I don't think so. I, you know, I mean, we've talked about Winnipeg all season. If it's not Winnipeg, it's probably Nashville, even if Nashville's not looking super hot all the time this year. But they have the elements. I think Calgary has to say, we can probably go a round or two. It'll be great experience for some of our younger players. Um, it, we will build on it next year where, you know, 
maybe they do have a legit shot if they find a veteran goaltender, you know, a, a star goaltender. But I, I think they have to be very careful this season. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Ryan. Especially when you look at the goalie market, potential guys available for trade. There's there's Bobrovsky, but he has a no-trade clause. Uh, and there's maybe Jimmy Howard in Detroit, and he has a 10-team trade list, I believe. So neither guy is a guaranteed get. And also, is either guy a guaranteed upgrade? And not just a guaranteed upgrade, but an upgrade that requires you to give up something. And the Calgary Flames don't have an elite and a particularly deep prospect crop. People out there listening might say, what do you mean? Bobrovsky not an upgrade? Well, he's been statistically one of the worst playoff goalies of the last decade. He's been terrible in the playoffs. So he's not proven on that stage just yet. So all I'm saying is, if you're going to give up something, which Calgary would, to get a goalie, you want to get a goalie that you know is an upgrade. And I don't know that there's a guaranteed upgrade over Riddick out there right now. I think the Flames are probably better off seeing what they have this year. And then in the summer, you can look at a Bobrovsky because at that point, he only costs money. Not that I think he would come to Calgary, but you never know. Just saying. Um, but I'm with you there, Ryan. So we're going to switch over to some fantasy hockey talk now. A few pickups that I think are pretty exciting ones at the moment. Uh, the first one, it's going to be three forwards here, okay, guys? So... Uh, I'm looking at Danton Heinen in Boston for a couple of reasons. He's only owned in 9% of Yahoo League, 6 points in his past 4 games. What's exciting about Heinen is even a few days ago, he was worth a pickup because he'd been moved onto the first line with Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand. And people might have hesitated to pick him up thinking, well, it's only a matter of time before David Pasternak gets put back on that line. But now we know Pasternak broke his thumb, freak injury, and he's going to miss at least a few weeks, which could amount to the rest of the season for fantasy hockey players, depending on how that thumb heals. So it's no longer a matter of whether Heinen's going to stay on that line. His opportunity is much bigger. Uh, so he has a chance to be a real difference maker for people who are in their playoff pushes in their fantasy leagues. Another guy uh, to look at in Chicago is Dominic Cahoon. I believe that's how you pronounce his name, but I could be wrong, so I apologize. I've never spoken his name out loud, and I'm sure many of you haven't. That's why he's only owned in 5% of leagues. He's an obscure name, but that second line with Dylan Strom, Alex Dabrinkit, the former Erie Otters, is so hot, as hot as any line in hockey right now. You want any piece of that line. So if Strom has been scooped up in most leagues by now, and of course Dabrinkit was already drafted, Cahoon is the third piece of that line. He's got nine points in his past five games. He's getting just as hot as they are, and he's a great, at least short-term ad to see if that line can stay hot. The last one is pretty confounding. I scratch my head. Andreas Janssen in Toronto, he was one of my main sleepers. I banged the drum for him uh, all summer long. I still owned only 13% of leagues, 17 points in his past 20 games. He's finally ascended into that top nine in Toronto, playing very well, uh, getting lots of opportunities now. And I don't really know what it's going to take for people to pick up a guy after he's got 17 points in 20 games. I'm going to call out those bad fantasy pool league players again. Your league sucks. Andreas Janssen should be owned. So that's the fantasy section this week. Now it's time for Ryan and a little bit of Future Watch. Yeah, and I'll start with the 2019 draft as per usual. Going into the Quebec League with Maxim Kajkovic from the St. John Sea Dogs. Uh, this is a player that first came on the radar last year at the World Under-18 Playing for Slovakia, he was just sensational. Uh, as an underage, really just blew the doors off that tournament. So high expectation coming into the year. He was the first overall pick in the CHL import draft. So high expectation. 
And the first half did not go very well. I was just talking to a scout the other day that said his team was actually ready to write Kaikovic off um, because you know his body language was bad, wasn't really getting along with teammates, it seemed, and, uh, and the numbers weren't there. Then Kaikovic was actually cut from Slovakia's world junior team, which is pretty surprising because they're not a deep program. And in the second half with the Sea Dog, he's been a lot better. The body language is better. He's finding chemistry with his teammates. In his past 15 games, he has 15 points. And now that same scout is saying he's back on our radar. So there's a ton of potential. Kid's got a big time shot. Um, he can obviously produce. He seems to have turned things around. Maybe it's just a bit of culture shock at first. Who knows? Uh, but he'll be one to watch. It'll be interesting to see where he falls. Because coming into the season, uh, I mean, you looked like you might be like a top 10, top 15 pick. Uh, obviously, that's slid a bit. But is he a second rounder? You know, where does he fall? It'll be fun to see that. Uh, moving on to drafted prospect. And uh, one of my favorites. NCAA traditions is the Beanpot Tournament. It happens in Boston every year over the span of two weeks and has all four NCAA Division I programs. So you got Harvard, Northeastern, Boston College, and Boston University. Um, they do a semifinal and then a final the next week. For the second straight year, Northeastern took it after a 30-year uh, gap in between wins. Caden Primo, the big Montreal Canadiens goaltending prospect, Named MVP, 33 saves against Boston College in the final. Named goaltender of the tournament for the second straight year. Um, this has been a big season for him because there was some inconsistency early on with the Huskies, but played for Team USA at the World Juniors, did very well there. Um, and it really seems like that momentum that he had in his freshman year when he was so amazing has returned. And, uh, Great news for Habs fans because Primo has everything you would want. He is, um, you know, he's got NHL pedigree. Obviously, the Primo family, a, a big name, and uh, things are going great for him right now. Oh, okay, guys, I just wanted to jump in here for a second uh, while you guys were blabbing nonsensically about uh, prospects and uh, fantasy hockey players and all this other stuff. I actually checked with an agent about the cap recapture penalties, and there is indeed. A cap recapture with uh, with uh, Roberto Luongo, um, and the main reason is because he was he was one of those uh, front loaded contracts that was signed uh, before the last CBA. Um, they they were legal at the time, uh, but they basically in the last CBA they basically um, retroactively kind of uh, put the boots to those contracts. So there definitely would be cap recapture. Uh, if Roberto Luongo retired, he's got three years left on his deal after this year. I think one year at one point eight million, one year at one million, and another year at one million. Uh, so there would be cap recapture. I believe it would be uh, shared between the Florida Panthers and the Vancouver Canucks, with the Florida Panthers probably taking more of the brunt. But the more likely situation here is, guys, is that Roberto Luongo at some point this summer is going to be lifting weights. And if, if, if he decides he doesn't want to play anymore, he's going to be lifting weights and he's going to put his back out. Uh, too bad, right? And what's going to happen is he's just going to, he's going to be hurt and he's not going to be able to play and they're going to be able to get around it that way. He'll be put on LTIR for the rest of his 
career probably the same way you know a lot of these other guys have have, have done it and uh he's just going to go away so uh i suspect if he decides he doesn't want to play anymore that's the way it's going to unfold rather than him you know retiring and there being cap recapture so i'm glad i was able to clear that up a little bit at a boy kenny and uh yeah i think that's a good theory about luongo uh we've seen it all we've seen equipment allergy marion hosa so everything is possible <laughs> Alrighty, thank you, Ryan. Uh, we're going to switch over to the magazine now. And it's funny that Ken had mentioned before the Flames uh, and their press clippings, but one of the big press clippings is ours. Because if you look at the current issue of the Hockey News, the cover is Johnny Hockey, Johnny Hockey, Mr. Johnny Gaudreau. Uh, I was going to play some audio of our interview, but I had forgotten, fellas. Uh, media Day at the All-Star Game was a bit of a, a crazy uh, situation with the fans were screaming and because we had that stadium seating situation where there were fans looming over us, so I went back to listen to the interview, and all I could hear almost was just fans screaming. So I can't play the audio. Um, it, wouldn't, it would be a little too hard on the ears, but I can tell you a little bit about the interview, which I did with Gaudreau. We went and hid in some kind of like storage room because that's the only place we could find that drowned out some of the noise. He was very accommodating, a respectful little guy. And it's funny I say little guy, but he even was telling me that he still feels the, the urge, the need to call everybody Mr. and Mrs., which is kind of the most Johnny Gaudreau thing ever because he looks like a little kid. Um, but it, it was a, a refreshing interview. Um, you can read it in the magazine. And one of the things that stood out to me, one of my favorite answers of his, uh, we talked a lot about his family, but um, I, I asked him about just the concept of him as an elite dangler and whether he believes that's a tool in his belt or something that he enjoys doing. And he could have taken the sort of cliche route and given a hockey player answer like, oh, no, it's, it's something I do well and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for it. But he went the other way and he said, no, I love doing it. I love to dangle all my teammates every single day. It's my goal to humiliate all of them. So Johnny Gaudreau, every single practice, he says, tries to dangle every other flame and he just so he can hold it over them and chirp them in the dressing room. Uh, and he even used the word art. He referred to dangling as art. So I thought that was pretty cool because you don't always get a player uh, that confident about his skills. And you can read more about it and learn a lot about uh, Johnny Gaudreau as a kid uh, if you pick up the next copy of the Hockey News. So now, Kenny, it's time for a hot take if you have something sizzling for us on this cold winter day. Well, you know, guys, today I want to talk about the NHL's Wheel of Justice. The NHL's Wheel of Justice, the one that General George uses when he's giving out suspensions. And he, he just turns the Wheel of Justice and sees where it ends, where it ends up. And then he gives out a suspension. And in this case, it was the one-game suspension to Evgeny Malkin for this vicious, vicious, vicious stick swing at Michael Raffle. Um, one game for that. Uh, I can't believe that's only one game. Um, and I can't believe that Michael Raffle gets out of this uh, scot-free. Um, he punches Evgeny Malkin right in the back of the head for, for little to no reason. I mean, I, I just... I see no reason for that punch to the back of Malkin's head. Um, and he gets nothing, and Malkin swings his stick viciously, like viciously. And I mean, if he makes contact with, with Raffle's throat, or his eyes, or his nose, or his teeth, um, that's an ugly, ugly situation. Um, but, and, and I'm not, so I'm not, I'm certainly not condoning what, what Malkin did. But he did get punched in the back of the head. Uh, to me, this was a perfect example for the league to make a statement and say that both of these things are brutal. I mean, you know, you can talk about heat at the moment. You can talk about all these other things. 
but this was completely and utterly just vicious, dirty stuff. Uh, both of them should have been suspended. I think that I think I think that Malkin should have got five games, and Raffle should have gotten one or two games himself for the punch to the head. But the wheel of justice said otherwise, so here we go. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can see where you're coming from, Kenny. Um, I I like the idea that Malkin got obviously a worse punishment than Raffle, who got nothing. Uh, because even if you look at it in court, like assault with a weapon versus a punch to the face, you're going to get punished worse. But uh, I agree, the one game felt light. And on one hand, you know, once a suspension is decided upon, an injury to the player would actually lengthen it. And if there's no injury, that worked in Malkin's favor. Uh, but at the same time, I think this goes back years and years and years. But the NHL's always had a history, in my opinion, of they're way better at punishing injury than action. And, and part of it is because that's in the CBA. That, that the injury lengthens a suspension, but I still think that uh, a vicious stick swing, can, like to me, a vicious stick swing could be every bit as bad as what Todd Bertuzzi did to Steve Moore. The only difference is that Bertuzzi happened to fall awkwardly and Moore got hurt, but the stick swing by Malkin to me was in some ways just as vicious of an action. It just happened to not connect and catch the person on the right angle. So I, I think overall I'm with you on that one, Kenny. Well, there we go. I, yeah, yeah, to me... To me, Matt, it's like it—it's it, it, it just—it just boggles my mind. And you said that you know you said that the NHL has always you know punished injuries you know more than just action. But and and and, and I and I don't have a problem with that. Of course, if he were injured, it, it should be a more uh, it should be a more severe punishment. If he injures him and hits him in the face or the throat or the or the teeth, you know that's a twenty game suspension. You know he gets off lightly. With, in my opinion, he gets off lightly with five. Because he was lucky enough that his stick thing swing didn't hit anything, um, so to me it's, it still doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, you know, I, I've, I've, you know, I, I gave up trying to figure out the NHL's Department of Player Safety a long time ago. All righty, what about you, Ryan? Are you in agreement, or any other thoughts? Yeah, I, it, it's tough because you, you have to be responsible for your stick at all times and. I, you know, looking at the context, like, it's funny, Ken, you said, like, you know, why did Raffle punch him in the back of the head? It's like, well, it's because it's Flyers Penguin. <laughs> you know, it's like, all of a sudden, like, you know, all logic goes out the window uh, when those teams play, and uh, and you get that mayhem that a lot of folks like in certain uh, parameters, but I, I think Malkin probably got a little lucky, and this is the league saying, like, this is your warning. Don't be dumb again. Fair enough. Yeah, the only thing is, is, is you know, this is your warning. Don't be dumb again. Okay, you were dumb again. So, you know, now we're really going to be upset with you. We're going to give you three games. And you know what? The next time you're really going to have to pay for it. I, I just, hmm. don't be dumb again. You got five games. Don't be dumb again. That, that would be my, my, my argument. One thing that's interesting, and this surprised me, um, so I, I did an interview with George Paris, head of the, the DOPS, uh, during the All-Star weekend. You guys, you'll see it in an upcoming issue. But one thing I, I mentioned to him was I found it fascinating that the NHLPA, in theory, cannibalizes itself because when it comes to negotiating a suspension, isn't the, isn't the PA representing the victim and the perpetrator, right? And, and how does that work? But one thing that I was surprised to learn is that really – the victim doesn't have a representative. The hearings that happen, 
there's no one standing for the victim. There's only someone standing for the person who committed the on-ice crime. And I think that's part of the reason why you don't see longer suspensions. And I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I don't know if it, that's the way it should be, but that, that's the way it is for now. So let's move on to the mailbag. First question is from Tim Huey. Tim says, what can the Avalanche do to stop the bleeding without trading away assets? That's a tough one. Uh, I've been saying all year that I think Joe Sackick is playing this right. He's playing things pretty conservatively, knowing that uh, this team is not ready to be a, an elite contender. So I understand why he's being conservative. But do you guys agree and do you think that he should be doing more to try and get the Avs into the playoffs this year? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, he's asking. The question was to do it without without trading assets, right? So, um, so we have to frame it in that way. And I think, you know, one of them is get better goaltending, and two of them, I think, the second thing I think is, you know, do, do you not consider breaking up the top line at some point? Like, do you not consider breaking those guys up and maybe spreading them around on other lines so you're not so predictable and you don't, you know, you don't have just one line that could do anything. And meanwhile, I mean, you could. And right now, you could justify breaking up that top line because they haven't been good the last couple of games. Um, you know, they were really they were really bad last night against Toronto. Um, you know, I think Nathan McKinnon had like two shots. Um, you know, I mean, Rantanen's fallen off the map in terms of his production. Uh, I think he's just got two points in the last eight games, something like that. Um, I think McKinnon has like four and Landis got three. So these guys are no longer lighting it up. So it's the worst of both worlds. People are, are keying in on that top line, and they're not getting anything done. And because they have all their good players on one line, um, their, their other lines are, are not very good either. So I think maybe right now you consider, you know, I mean, there was a time when I wanted to do a cover story on these guys because I thought they were the best line in the NHL. Well, right now they're not. And I think, you know, you have to consider a, a situation where maybe you break these guys up and try and get them to get other guys going. Yeah, for me, I, I just see a team that isn't good enough. And in this current iteration, it's, it's not going to be good enough, but, but that's okay. You know, you alluded to it too, Matt, that I, I think Joe Sackett's doing fine here because, you know, they've, they've made some, some tough decisions sending Tyson Jones to the minors. I mean, that's big, but in the long term, if it helps him get on track offensively, get his confidence in the place it needs to be, and you know we know just it's a great two-way game as a youngster, then that's going to pay dividends long-term. You, know, you look at a guy like Alice Kerfoot, we talked last year about William Carlson's shooting percentage and how it wasn't sustainable. Well, guess who was tied for him for best amongst NHL regulars? Alexander Kerfoot. So the fact that his production is dipped uh, should not be a, a, a real surprise. He's still a pretty decent player, but I mean, you, you're not going to suspect him to have the same results year over year until he continues to grow. You know, as an NHLer, uh, you know, we talked about earlier in the podcast. Colorado has Ottawa's first rounder. It could very well be number one overall, and all of a sudden, you know, that top line, even if you keep them together, they're going to have Jack Hughes behind them, and that's going to give Jack Hughes a ton of freedom, and we know how good Jack Hughes can be already. I mean, we've seen him internationally, we've seen him do amazing things with the NTDP. I mean, he's a game-breaker. He's like Patrick Kane as a pure center, and I think if he was on Colorado next year, 
then you've really got something going in your top six because you know teams can't just focus on that first line. So for me now, I would say don't surrender any assets. Don't try to improve. Just play with the string. If you make the playoffs, that's great. If you don't, that's fine as well. I was even joking the other day that the way the lottery works, what if Colorado got the first and second pick overall? It's, it's mathematically possible. Oh, baby. Completely possible. You could have Hughes and Capo. Heck, you could put them on the same line if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, that would be almost un- it'd be unprecedented. Wow. And the, the rest of the Central Division would be like, oh, come on! Like, already the, yeah. the, the Predators and Jets and then... It would not be unprecedented, though, Ryan Kennedy. It would not be unprecedented. Montreal Canadiens drafted Mark Tardif and Great one and two overall. There way back. Go. Way back. So it would not be unprecedented. Okay, there, there you, go. you go. Almost. Almost unprecedented. Almost. It would be precedented, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny with the fact bomb. Uh, next up question is from Jordan. Jordan Sampson, 198. When will we see a female behind the bench or as an official, either on or off the ice? I believe Jordan refers, is referring to in the NHL. Uh, seems like the time is near and it would help grow the game. I, I do think we're getting closer, and I think the first place to look is uh, the hiring of Haley Wickenizer in Toronto as assistant director of player development. Um, so to me, that's a step toward that eventual goal. What do you guys think? Are we close? I, I think I think you're right, Matt. I think we're getting there. Um, I, I, I suspect it will be uh, an off-ice situation rather than an on-ice situation, although... Although, I, I mean, there's nothing that would, in my mind, that would prevent a woman from being a good NHL coach. Um, you know, if, if they know the game uh, and they can relate to people and they have some presence and they, they're competent, then there's no reason why a woman would not be able to be every bit as good of a coach in the NHL as a man. There's, there's nothing in the gender thing that, that would dictate anything otherwise. Uh, but I still think it's going to be an off-ice thing, and I think, you know, you do have to look at Haley Wickenheiser, who's, who's, you know, who's, who, who, like, basically seems to be Wonder Woman at the moment. She's attending med school full-time at the University of Calgary. She's, uh, she still has her foundation, and she's, she's, she's actually really quite involved in player development with the Leafs. Um, you know, she watches a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of games at night. She, visits with a lot of their prospects when they're coming through Calgary. Um, she's in Toronto a couple of times a month. Um, and she's, you know, I mean, been around hockey all her life. She's, a, she's obviously a very, very bright person, um, you know, who has a lot of good ideas and, and, and knows the game as well as, as well as any man, as, as absolutely as well as any man. Um, so I, I, I do think it's coming. Uh, it's probably going to be slower than, Anyone would like because NHL, um, because hockey, but uh, but but you know it, it's going to happen. It is going to happen, and I, I mean we're seeing it in analytics departments. There are you know some, some some women that are working you know in analytics, which I mean obviously is there's no gender bias there at all. Um, so I, I you know I mean if JC like I've said I said all along if JC Easter can be a GM in the NHL, and then any. Anybody can. Any woman can. Jace Easter has never played an organized game of hockey in his life. He doesn't know how to skate. He was never exposed to the game. And his first exposure to the game was when he did legal work for the Hershey Bears uh, of the American Hockey League. And that's how he learned the game. 
and became a GM. So if, if he can do it, there's absolutely no reason in my mind why uh, there, there aren't a, a whole bunch of women out there that can do the same thing. I'm going to go in a different direction here and say that the first woman we see at the NHL level will be an on-ice official, either a referee or a lines person. Um, I, I just think that if you look at that particular vocation, uh, it might be a former player. We're seeing a lot of former players on the men's side go into officiating uh, You know, once they've given up their NHL dreams or they just sort of feel a calling to it. And, you know, we see plenty of female officials in the NBA. I know they have them in basketball. I think maybe there's even been some in football recently. Um, but it's a type of position where, can you skate really well? Well, yes, we've seen that obviously women can do that just as well as men. You know the rule book? Nothing says that that's going to change. You know, like, that's not going to be any different based on gender. You know, the only argument I could see people putting up is, oh, well, you know, like, well, it wouldn't be big enough to separate Tom Wilson and Josh Anderson. Well, you know, like, unless you're Mike Civic, uh, there are plenty of referees and linesmen that are not strong enough to pull apart two NHLers. I think there's a tacit understanding during a fight that when the officials step in, that's when you break it up. And, I mean, we barely see any fighting in the league anymore anyways. Um, So I, I think that might actually be the first time we see a woman in a prominent on-ice role uh, in the NHL because uh, with officials, it, it's something where you know it, the league is taking care of it. And you know, I agree with you, Ken, that you know, hockey is very conservative, and a team would have to really stick their neck out to have a female coach. Um, but with officiating, I, I don't see any barriers. Great answer from both you guys. Uh, I think that's going to be it for this week on the podcast and. Hopefully, the next time you hear us, it will be in a normal environment with normal sound. We promise, eventually, we will get there. Thanks for listening.